0: Welcome to the Palia Podcast. I'm Turi Monte. Where do your opinions come from? Why do we think what we think and why do we disagree? In each episode, we'll talk with thought leaders from around the world to help us understand the nature of opinion, how ideas form, why we argue, and what that means for society. Join us at parlia.com, the Encyclopedia of Opinion. Today we're joined by James Mumford. James is a writer and ethicist, and a fellow at the University of Virginia's Institute for Advanced Studies in Culture. His book *Vexed: Ethics Beyond Political Tribes* just came out with Bloomsbury. James, we're thrilled to have you on the Palia podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Turi. It's a great, great pleasure to be talking to you about this. Um, the, place I really want to start is to ask you about polarization. I think your book emerges out of a concern that there is an increase in polarization in the world today, um, and that um, w- we're responding in ways which are not just unimaginative and potentially dangerous, but just not terribly logical to it. But tell me a little bit more about
1: w- why you think we're polarized. Well, I started this book in the States. Um, I was working at the University of Virginia, and I saw um, extraordinary polarization both around the time of um, President Trump's election, um, but but also more generally. And I saw that churches had sort of forgotten their raison d'etre and had been divided down the middle, families where family members weren't speaking to each other because they belonged to different parties. Um, I saw dinner parties where there weren't any debates because people from the other side of the spectrum ha- hadn't even been invited. Um, and so I saw that there was people were rankled on a whole range of issues, um, but not just on purely political ones or policy ones even, but on um, ethical ones as well. So I became interested in the way polarization was affecting um, how we come to think about ethics. Why do you think,
0: do you think we're more polarized today than we were in the past?
1: Yes, a lot of political studies have uh, shown that since, say, uh, the 50s, when the, uh, the American Association of Political Philosophy did, did one of its biggest studies that then they were complaining that, you know, why can't we see more distinctiveness about the parties and about their ways of thinking about things and doing things? Um, And which seems sort of charming in retrospect um, where. And so you have sort of markers in the sand of analysis showing that there was, you know, the Congress, Congress men and women were able to sort of move in terms of their particular um, votes across party lines. And you saw parties coming together to work in a more bipartisan way on even the guns issue in 1994, the Brady Bill, um, Republicans and Democrats worked together. Um, so you know, up, up to the end of the 20th century, obviously, you had ideological differences. But there was an ability to work together politically um, that uh, has been eroded. Do you, is
0: that because the consensus of what politics is for or what the state is for or even what, say, America or the UK is about has changed?
1: Yeah, uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think I sort of I don't know all of the dynamics behind um, the change shifts in polarization. To be honest, I was interested in in taking it at face value and seeing how it related to some of these key core live rail culture war issues that we'll come to. Um but um I think uh yeah I, I think in terms of um uh you know in the wake of the Cold War and and in the uh lack of a common en- enemy might might be um a, a huge part of uh sights and perspectives turning inwards and it, and becoming internal enemies because we didn't we didn't have that one external foe perhaps but that, that would really be me speculating
0: no i hear you that, 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 that i'm sure i'm sure that plays a part um i want to take you back to a beautiful anecdote you describe in the book where you're sitting in a car in the u.s and you're looking at some bumper stickers could you it's a, it's a nice way into talking about the package politics um that your book talks to
1: yes sure so I remember driving up to um, two cars, and on one car there was a smattering of different um, bumper stickers. I love bumper stickers, but they, these ones were all political, and they were pro God, pro guns, pro life, and and then uh, uh, there were stickers about the military, um, and there were stickers about um, uh, lambasting liberals for taking and spending versus conservatives who uh, defend and serve so that 's one car, right? and then on the right is a car uh, which has a completely different array of stickers, and it says "Coexist um, and it says "No nukes," and it says, "Eat fresh, buy local um, and a whole different what I was so interested in is is not just that people would declare their political identities and wear their hearts on the boots of their cars, as it were, but that they would um, that these different issues would belong together, that are across such a wide array um, of, of of issues that make up human life, but that would be stances that would be, you know, that because you um, you know were against gun control, therefore you had a view that um, you should be pro life, or vice versa. That that there was somehow some logic that meant that these stickers had to. Um, you know be displayed alongside one another on the same vehicle so in a sense that um
0: people have t- taken the package of what it means to be on the right and the package of what it means to be on the left for granted for a very long time without really looking to some of the profound internal inconsistencies there
1: Th- is that what you mean is this what you mean by sort of package politics broadly help, yes, help me understand what package politics exactly exactly so I use the phrase package deals and talk about the way that it isn't just that we're polarized, uh, as I said, about certain policy or foreign policy issues, but that about the most intimate um, ethical issues about things that what we do with our body and what we do with our wallets and um, how we think about um, giving and how we think about sex and, uh, and how we think about all these different, very intimate issues. Even they have become so politicized um, that they, our positions on them get governed by a particular ideology. Um, so that it will. Uh, but my my point is that it's a huge problem intellectually because a huge amount of incoherence is foisted upon us when we take one view um, just because it's been in historically and contingently. Fixed and adjoined onto another view by political parties who are out to um, build coalitions. So there, there are a couple of,
0: there, there are many fabulous examples in your book, but a couple really struck for me. Um, taking one on the right, for example, I have always assumed that um, the pro-life movement, that the anti-abortionists, were always an implicitly, a, a, you know, a part of part of the part of the right, part of the hard Republican line. But actually, your book walks us through how that's not only historically not accurate, but also very possibly um, ethically inconsistent. Can you, can you walk us through the history of anti-abortion in the U.S. and how it yes.
1: fits today? Yes. And I was um, taking this partly from an uh, Oxford University press book called Defenders of the Unborn that tells the story in even greater detail than I do. But, um, you know, Catholics are pro-life. And Catholics were in the 1930s, in the 1940s, New Deal Democrats. And so they had you know, concerns about the poorest and about the effects of the Great Depression on the poorest. They wanted to reach the most marginalized, often because they were the most marginalized. And it was, it was they who were resistant to the liberalization of abortion laws across the states, at individual state level um, in the 1960s, and then... Um, were, were the ones who were, you know, crying, who, who were so um, aggrieved by the federal, the judiciary's decision in Roe versus Wade in 1973 to legalize abortion. And then what happened is really only after Roe, Roe v. Wade or around around that time, um, President Nixon decided that, you know, he he wanted the Catholic vote and that he needed it if he was going to um, beat the Democrats. And so he cynically uh, reversed his decision, which had been um, quite open to abortion, to being he sent out um, feelers and then he sent out messaging that he was changing his position and and was going to be um, uh, against abortion. And that meant that whilst the Democrats had become more liberal as well during the 1960s, uh, there was a reversal, and the and Catholic pro-life vote was um, was on mass brought within to the into the Republican Party, and so the resistance to, and the objections to Roe versus Wade post uh, after Roe versus Wade to abortion after Roe versus Wade was from Catholics who had become Republicans, and that's a, a hugely important sh- uh, important story in you know the Republican. In the, in the Republican Party's development in the in the late twentieth century. So, critically, there's nothing
0: intrinsically right wing about being anti-abortion. But but I,
1: uh, yeah but... I don't I don't think so because I think you know what um, some of my uh, you know colleagues who are pro-life um, would say is that if you believe that the fetus or what I call the new one to try and find some new language. The new one, the prenatal human uh, organism, uh, is is a a weak creature that is dependent on others. Um, It's possible to see the logic of reaching the marginalized and the weakest and standing up for those who are least fit and least able to defend themselves. Um, All of these things that we think of as part of the inheritance of the left's sort of ethical um, prescriptions and and ethical most than deepest ethical convictions all of those things might apply to a pro-lifer based on the premise that the fetus is a person who has rights and so you've seen in recent times the um the the right wanting to raid back on the left's language of asking you know when pastor rick warren asked president obama um you know when he thought the fetus uh Got human rights. It was a wanting to move on to the left's more comfortable territory of rights language.
0: Understood. Um, but there's, so there's so there's there's no particular reason that pro-life, the pro-life position, should not be Democrat in a sense. But you also seem to suggest there's no particular there's potential inconsistency in the way that the the right, the Republican Party. Um, understands the ethics of their
1: pro-life position in relation to, say, guns? I do think that, yes. I think that um, if you're pro-life um, before birth, you should be pro-life after birth, and that I think you should be pro-life across the board, whether that comes to capital punishment or to gun control. And I think it's a very strange, anomalous fact about America that you have a huge group of religious um, people who expend an extraordinary amount of energy trying to stop um, sane, by any other country's standards uh, globally, sane restrictions like background checks um, being applied at a federal level um, to the possession of uh, lethal weapons. Um, And they expend all of their energy trying to stop that from happening even though 40,000 lives a year are lost um, due, to, due to these weapons being so freely available. Understood. So here, per, sort of a,
0: a beautiful example of um, a profound ethical inconsistency at the heart of a packaged deal, a packaged deal on the right. Can you walk us through one on the left, for example? One of the examples that you, um, that you have in your book is assisted suicide being... A sort of a standard leftist democrat um position which you also feel doesn't fit necessarily at all
1: in um in a sort of a consequential ethical approach there yes that's right i mean if we go back for a second to those deep ethical convictions of the left about um uh about mar- the marginalized and about inclusivity um i think that um there's a case to be made that in the, in the society we live in, which is in, in some residual ways quite ageist in the way, and we see that through the way that older people so often talk um, so, so tragically about becoming, having become burdens, either financially or emotionally um, upon the state or their families um, or their carers. That in this kind of world, um, I, I believe that Um, introducing the assisted suicide option, just putting it on the table, increases the pressure on older people to seek a way out to relieve their families of the burdens that they have become, even if their families haven't said anything about that. And so I think that any of you that really wants to think about the poorest older people or the most marginalized older people or those older people who have come to see themselves as a burden would want to run miles away from... Increasing the pressure that would be put on those older people, and so it seems strange that um, the left is sees their advocacy of assisted suicide as something that's really central to their program, where I think it would be put it this way around, I think it would be more um, a resist a resistance to and an outright opposition to assisted suicide would fit suicide. Would fit more naturally with some of the left's deepest convictions. Gotcha. Um, okay, so just go, going up, going
0: up a level here, there is a sort of whatever happened to Kansas element here, and whatever happened to Kansas. I forgot the name of the writer, but um, what, Thomas Frank. Yes, thank you. Yes, Thomas Tom, Thomas Frank, whose who, whose basic idea was that um, the Republican Party at a certain point had instrumentalized. Um, Religious belief to get people who would otherwise not naturally vote Republican to do so, um, gay marriage or anti-gay marriage, gays in the military, abortion, etc., to get people who were who, whose economic interests were best served by voting Democrat to vote for um, to vote for conviction against their economic interests. There's obviously some there's a
1: there's yeah. a political calculation here, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's a powerful argument. Yeah. Um, so on the one hand political
0: pollsters and political operators have been have been super savvy about putting together these sort of package deals that you're talking about but those would only work um those would only work if there was something else going on at a psychological level what 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 is the thing which allows me you perhaps also but man, many of us to um to wander around with these sort of deep ethical inconsistencies mm. <laughs> at the very heart
1: well, our yeah Well, I think it's a great question. I think it has to be something to do with the reassurance that comes from belonging to a tribe. Um, I personally want mates. I want friends. I want uh, groups of people among whom I can take things for granted and share assumptions. and, And there's something profoundly reassuring about that in an existential way. And so if the price of admission is coherence, um, then sometimes I, for one, am willing have been willing to pay that price because I want to, you know, uh, have a place in the world and have groups of people who um, with whom I identify. And the the problem that I'm raising is a, a problem to myself, as it were, in saying, actually, um, we need more dissent and we need more people who are willing to question their own tribes, but that, as I say, I think comes at a personal cost.
0: It's that old line, isn't it? It's, it's, people prefer, myself included, to be wrong together than right alone.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I think that's very, much more neatly, compactly put. <laughs> okay, <laughs> um, now you talk about an increased polarization.
0: Do you think there's also increased tribalism? Where does, where does that come from, do you think?
1: i can't i think it comes from the fact that we're social creatures um and that we we have a desire to um have pockets where we feel safe in the world with other people um, among whom we share views that don't rankle us um you know they even with the um in the in the nation state you know Theorists of the nation-state have said, you know, talked about this term "imagined communities." So that the the hedge funder in London, you know, is is closer in terms of identity to the um, uh, to to the older conservative voter in Tunbridge Wells than he might be to his own daughter, who um, is a um, is on the left, and so you you, you have this this desire to um it's not to conform but this desire to to have a place as i say which 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 means that um which leads to blindness to certain incoherence of thought i think and i've certainly seen that in my own desire to want to belong where i sort of even though i don't like the whole package of views that's being um uh which is on offer i'll you know, swallow a few things I don't like rather than question those things because I, I don't want to cause a problem because I, at a, some fundamental level, want to be accepted. You know, I think it yeah. goes psychologically very deep.
0: I, I think that's true. I notice it, I know it in myself. But I think the question I'm asking you is Has it got worse? Do you see features of today's media ecosystem, political ecosystem, economic reality that accelerates that tribalism that has, on the one hand, to your first point, accelerated this sort of breakdown in consensus as to what politics should be about or what the state is, but also an acceleration of this tribalism. I feel that there is, we've returned certainly in America to this to this identity politics that you talk about, um, but also the fractures that we see in the UK after Brexit, even in the midst of coronavirus, feel very violent and acute where do you place this? Do you think it's worse than it has been? It feels like it's worse than it was when we were growing
1: up. Yeah, it certainly does feel that. Um, I think that it's the you know what lots of commentators have written about the effects of social media in terms of ensuring that we you know uh, we live in parallel universes which have become echo chambers, um, and so we we only hear views. Um that we want to hear, and that can only increase tribalism, so technology uh, place is a part of the answer, I think, and then there's the um, the self reinforcing nature of the of the kind of leaders that we've chosen as well, particularly in the United States with uh, Donald Trump, and who is in a way that you know Carl Schmitt, the political theorist in the 1930s talked about, you know, is constantly on the need, on the lookout for an enemy um, and in the creation of various enemies at the level of um, in immigration discourse or in um, a whole host of different discourses has not, not only benefited from tribalism but then accelerated it, like you say. Um, and I think that, you know, there's there's no question that 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 politics is not just the consequence of this, but is also the way that politics is done is a cause of this.
0: There's an argument which I like a great deal. Um, well, it resonates with me. I don't like it, obviously. It's it's terrifying that um, a kind of mass information surplus really destabilizes people's understanding of where they sit in the world. When you've got thousands of different competing narratives attacking you at all times, it's extremely destabilizing, and therefore um, could very easily prompt a rush to the safety of tribes, the safety mm-hmm. of big political groupings. The thing which is so frightening is that those big political groupings um, are not big enough to encompass the imagined community of a
1: nation, as you say. So we end up with fractured, fractured um, entities. Yeah, um, I think that's that's absolutely right. Um, that we the irony of having more access to knowledge um, and yet being so overwhelmed by that by it that we. You know, seek resort to tribalism.
0: Not pretty. I hope that's n- not true. Um, and maybe it's just maybe it's, maybe this is generational. Maybe we just need to get to understand how we deal with too much too much data. Um, but but actually, your your, your book finishes beautifully um, with a call um, to something that you call moral imagination. It's not just a call for an exercise of greater reason or stronger rationalism or um, or greater integrity it's 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 something else what do you what is
1: moral imagination James yes so moral imagination is the ability to put oneself in the shoes of parties who you know your decisions are going to affect or being able to um, become aware of those groups that your decisions are going to affect and allowing allowing your empathy with those groups to affect how you act so for example in the case of guns there's a way of life argument that uh, conservatives use saying that well our our way of life where guns are not used in an antisocial way but but we need automatic weapons for example to um to use in sports competitions and so forth our way of life is is so different from how they're used in downtown Chicago or in, in, in Queens or something like that. And I would say that there is a failure of imagination to realize that the connections there are within one nation or even within one state, in the case of New York State, um, so that what is required of of gun owners um, in, upstate Albany, in upstate New York in Albany is to have the moral imagination to, to realize that for kids caught in the crossfire in Queens, um, you know, that's happening because of um, the free availability and the easy availability of weapons which are being used for, say, more responsible purposes. And so the exercise of a moral imagination in that case is going to lead to sacrifices on the part of uh, the gun owners. Another example... Sorry, start? go on no i was
0: going to ask so this is just just to just to frame it this sort of is a question of realizing that you live in a much larger sort of shared reality with people in other tribes right it's 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 extending beyond your it's extending beyond your immediate sort of ideological kin is that right
1: it is yes but it's also in r- relation to the different ethical issues that i look at it's thinking about those parties that are affected um, by our decision making, um, and they may belong to, to our own tribe, or they may belong to different tribes. But it's that's the the moral imagination, the ability to um, to see um, uh, and to bring into view groups who often remain hidden from sight, like the the elderly, who you know could become put under extreme pressure to relieve their families are the burdens they believe that they've come, like bringing that group into view when we make decisions about whether we should legalise assisted suicide. That's a responsible... That's the use of moral imagination I'm calling for. Is this the same as empathy? It is It is the same event as empathy, but it could also be, in a more political way, um, it, it could be thinking ahead to outcomes in the future and, and trying to foresee... So I think of empathy as being for groups that already exist, whereas more imagination could be bringing into view, thinking about the effects on future generations as well.
0: I want to end with a a question about cosmopolitans, which in your world are not just fantastic cocktails. They are a way of thinking or approaching the world.
1: Yeah, well, I think, you know, we've seen a real reaction to cosmopolitanism um, in uh, um, in, the, uh, in the Brexit votes and in Theresa May's phrase that um, uh, when she said that, you know, not a citizen of the world, um, we've seen a real reaction to what's seen to be liberal cosmopolitanism, which is identified by sceptics with the sort of um, fleet of foot Uh, anywhere, uh, to use David Goodhart's phrase, middle classes um, or super elite that aren't tied to places uh, but um, but, but move and are inconsiderate of their neighbourhoods and so forth. And what I'm trying to say is that actually we need to rehabilitate a notion of cosmopolitanism by identifying it with moral imagination. And by that I mean we realize that we're citizens of the world and that those who we don't know, who are strangers to us, actually do belong to us. And so for rural gun owners, it might be the children caught in the crossfire in Compton. For um, for other groups, uh, it, it might be those people around the world who are affected by the decisions we make in terms of environmental policy. Um, it's cosmopolitanism is reaching to an audience that is unknown and yet we take responsibility for our actions because we know it will affect people who are altogether human like we are
0: so for a, a centrist monstrous centrist dad like me what are the what what, what are the s- f- flagship issues that you think we, I I say we but, but I should be thinking about
1: I think transhumanism is a big one and where um, some of the Um, literature and some of the sciences which is making possible some of the sort of moral dilemmas that philosophers have been writing about for ages um, are um, you know in in the use of CRISPR and the use of technologies um, to enhance human beings I think that's um, a a huge issue coming down the tracks Um, you know the I think assisted suicide is, as I've said, Um, I think the criminal justice system, particularly in America, um, has to change, has to be transformed. Um, And particularly the system, not just the imprisonment, but the system for those who have criminal records and the way that they are shut out of society. I think they they have to be um, brought into view as we make our, make our decisions moving forward. I would add one other thing, which is I think that this sort of notion of moral imagination I'm talking about, I think we've shown we still have it in this current COVID crisis. I think we show that the millennial who stays inside and heeds regulations, um, lockdown regulations, even though she may not think that she's a particular particularly at risk if she did uh, contract, coronavirus, but does it for the sake of the country. I think it's precisely that sort of concern for the distant other, which is what I'm trying to capture in talk of cosmopolitanism or moral imagination. So I think we should be taking, we should precisely be taking the resources and reservoirs of moral imagination we've shown and are showing in this crisis and apply them to these, how we think about these ethical issues once we've taken them out of their polarised contexts. James, this has been fascinating and
0: uplifting. So um, a huge thanks to you for joining us and talking us through your, um, your latest book, Vexed. It's been great fun.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Thierry.
0: That was the Palier podcast from Palia.com, the Encyclopedia of Opinion.